Welcome to the Be Here Now guest podcast. This series features a collection of teachings and conversations centered around mindfulness, spiritual growth, and living a life in balance. Each week, our diverse network of guest teachers and hosts offer up wisdom and practices from a different spiritual path and perspective. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash donate. So there's this prophecy in Tibetan Buddhism, and I like this prophecy a lot. And the prophecy is about a future Buddha who is to come. And uh, his name is Maitreya. And in Tibetan Buddhism, they draw pictures of him and tankas and art and chant mantras. And um, this Buddha, Maitreya, whose name is derived from the Sanskrit word Maitre, means universal love. And so he is called the Metta Buddha, the one who will come and um, teach about Metta. And so they say that eventually this cycle, these teachings will die out, and then out of great compassion, Maitreya will be born and he'll teach and he'll spread the teachings of love and kindness. And so I want to talk about metta tonight, and I want to talk about love and kindness, and talk about it from a couple of different ways. The first about is really about our misunderstanding of love. You know, in our culture, we're sort of obsessed with love. Love, love, open your heart. Workshops, endless. Even I teach a lot of workshops. Free your heart, open your heart, open to love. You know, and on this retreat, some people get overwhelmed. Love, love, okay, you know. There's this way in which we all crave it. We all want it. We look for it. And there's a lot of confusion about it. And I can see why that leads to a lot of cynicism, actually. Because it's really misunderstood, It's a lot of times associated with romantic relationships, first and foremost, right? So there's the lonely person looking for love out there, you know, and somehow they're incomplete. Um, And so we become seekers. We think that love is somewhere outside of ourselves. And I think this is a mistake. This is a misunderstanding. Uh, And the way that we do love people isn't really authentic. It's it's confused, it's attachment. And I could really see this, and I'm sure you can, uh, as you work with Metta and think about the people in your life, there's love with a lot of attachment. I'll love you if you love me back. I'll love you if you uh, perform the way I want you to. Uh, there's confusion and misunderstanding. And so that leads us to what we know as looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> So there's a song, uh, as you know, I, I was thinking of songs after Trudy mentioned Abracadabra, Reach Out and Grab You. So I was like, oh, perfect, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places by Johnny Lee. And so I just want to read you a couple of the, I printed the song out to just read a couple of the lyrics for you. So it says, I spent a lifetime looking for you. Single bars and good time lovers were never true. Playing the fool's game, hoping to win telling those sweet lies and losing again. (laughs) I was looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in too many faces, 
Search in their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. Hoping to find a friend and a lover, I'll bless the day I discover another heart looking for love. And then it goes on and on, you know, looking for love and on and on. You know the song on some level. (laughs) We all sing, sing it many ways. And so this looking for love becomes this quest of outside of ourself. We, we start looking for it in our jobs. We look for uh, recognition. We look for acknowledgement. We look for it in our peers and our communities. Um, we are willing to sacrifice for it. You know, how many times have we sold out some part of ourself looking for love and acceptance? It's so painful, really. As we sit and we reflect, it's like, oh, what am I willing to do for love, to get love? So it's a, a real misunderstanding, a real confusion about that. And we can feel desperate looking for genuine love and kindness. So when I grew up in my family, my parents um, both had very difficult backgrounds. Both of them came from very abusive situations, um, especially my mother. In some ways, it was my grandfather, he would have been in prison for the things that he had done to her. And so my father was the same way. And so when I was born, they didn't have love. They didn't know love very much. And they tried. But you only can give what you have. You only give what you know. And so they weren't abusive to me. They just didn't know how to really care, to really nurture and they themselves were looking for this love with, for themselves. And so it was, it was difficult. Um, and it impacted me throughout my life. I kind of grew up with this uh, need for attention that I sought everywhere. And so it was when I came to practice and I learned about metta that I thought, oh, this is it. This is something I can give myself. This is something that I can do. For myself, I don't have to look outside because in some way I knew that that was deluded. In some way I knew I couldn't get it because if I couldn't get it from my own parents, I certainly couldn't get it from anyone else. And so this talk tonight is really about wise love, wisdom love. So this metta, what is metta? You know, there's no English word really. For this meta is, it's more than that sentimental love. It's more than um, ordinary affection or warm feelings. The Pali, the Pali word literally means friendliness. But this kind of love also has, it's without desire to possess. It's not attachment. It's very different. It's open-hearted. It's generosity. It doesn't seek anything in return. Metta doesn't exclude anyone. It's like the sun that just shines on everyone. It doesn't choose you and you and maybe you. No, definitely not you. It doesn't operate like that. It's the radiant heart. It's open and inclusive. That's really what we seek. That's really the authentic love that we all know is there. So this metta is what the Buddha talked about. 
And so the origins of the teaching he originally gave, you know, he gave this to some monks. And there's a, it's kind of a funny story about these 500 monks that were practicing in this forest. Um, but they were looking for a place to practice and they went to this forest and there was these spirits there, these tree spirits. And, um, they didn't want the monks there because they were happy and peaceful and they thought, Oh, who wants 500 monks, you know, coming in and doing their practice? And so they tried to scare them off with sounds and, uh, you know, smells and, you know, haunting them. And they all ran away and they went back to the Buddha and said, we can't practice here. And the Buddha said, no, 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 go back, but I'll give you a protection. He said, here's this practice, here's this chant. And so all 500 monks, you know, went back and they all started doing the metta practice offering, may I be happy and peaceful, may all beings be free. And it said that all the energy went up into the, the trees where the spirits was, and they all went, okay, you could stay. You know, <laughs> somehow they felt that, that vibration, they felt that love, you know. So that was the origin of the practice. You know, then it became, it restarted, and people began to practice it. There was power. Oh, yeah, and then the end of the story is all 500 monks became fully enlightened, <laughs> All those stories that way it really makes you wonder. <laughs> so, it's possible. Who knows? So, one of the first wisdom insights that I had, and I've been practicing metta pretty intensively, I would say. Um, it's a practice I immediately took to. But one of the first insights I had about metta, and this was in the fall, I did a period of about three months of practice. And for four of the weeks, one of the months, I did just metta, day and night, walking, sitting, eating. Uh, it's a continuous practice. So I'd wake up and do it, all the phrases again and again. Um, and what I realized was that every Thing I was looking for, all the love I was generating myself, it was all in here. I could turn it on like a great light and radiate it out. It was a shock to me. I don't need anyone. I don't need someone to say, I love you, I love you. You know, I don't need acknowledgement. I don't need anything. All I needed was my own practice. I could turn it on at any moment. I could sit down and generate it. Do you know what a relief that is? That's the good news, another piece, like last night, the good news. <laughs> it's all in you. I cried when I realized that. I started crying. I thought, oh my gosh, I can turn it on. Every, I, can, I, can, I could feel this any moment. I can sit down and I can do it. It was beautiful. We don't have to wait for others to love us. Our task, I think, in this life is to authentically love ourselves, that we do it for ourselves. And we know this. You know, we hear it all the time. Don't look outside. It's all in you. You know, we know this, but there's something about we don't really believe or we don't really know how to do it, right? It's like, oh, how do I love myself? Well, the practice of metta gives us this ability. We can do it. We can start to generate this. In some way, I think that this self-hatred we have is the epidemic of our time. You know, Larry talked about it some last night. This way in which we view ourselves um, with intense aversion. 
I think is a huge illness and a sickness. It's something that is so distorted uh, to hate the self, to hate this manifestation. Like here we are, and somehow we start to hate our thoughts, I start to hate our bodies, we start to hate everything about us. And then it turns into a sickness, it's like an illness. And I think that this self-hatred um, contaminates and destroys everything that we do. And then it's almost like it leaks out and it, it contaminates things that we touch in our world, in our life, in our families. You know, my father had this intense self-hatred and, you know, he used cocaine and alcohol for 30 years to try to drown out that, that voice that was driving him insane, you know. And it's powerful, this voice. It's self-destructive. It's amazing how I work with teenagers a lot. I teach the Spirit Rock Teen Retreat. And here are these amazing, beautiful 15-year-olds. They come from beautiful families of the Spirit Rock parents. You know, they have everything and they hate themselves so badly. And I think, why, honey? You're radiant. And I think, already it started. This is incredible. How is this possible? And it's somehow it's in this culture. You know, they seep it. It comes through, you know, this collective kind of aversion toward the self. This real distortion. So, to me, it's serious. Because I see it starting at that age. I saw it in me. The self-judgment, this cruelty, also the inner critic that we wake up with. It's our drumbeat all day long commenting on everything, <laughs> the constant monologue. And what, in some way, I think that our path and our healing comes from transforming this. We have to. It's a lie to hate the self. It's a form of insanity. It's like hating the Buddha. It just doesn't make sense. I want to read you one of my favorite poems about the potential about loving ourselves, And it's this poem by Derek Walcott. He actually received a Nobel Prize in Literature in 1992. It's one of my favorite poems. Um, and it's called Love After Love. So he writes, The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at each other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life whom you've ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror and sit, feast on your life. And so in some way that's it. We meet ourselves on retreat even here. How are we meeting ourselves? How are we responding? That's really the big question or the big turning in some way is as we do this practice, how are we meeting our experiences? This is where metta is so powerful with just mindfulness practice with Vipassana. 
How do we meet what's arising? Most of us, when we sit here, we experience so many stories, so many images of the past, fears of the future, all the emotions come and go, anger, sadness, longing, anxiety. How are we meeting these experiences? We can learn to meet them with love and acceptance. One of my favorite books, you might know the author Byron Katie. She's kind of radical in her own way. (laughs) But she talks about loving what is. She thought really that the essence of that is metta. Can I meet each experience? Can I learn to love in each moment? Our knee pain, our painful thoughts, all the rage and the sorrow, that's what we can do. We can learn to practice with a sense of kindness. We can learn to do that. It might not be natural for ourselves. It wasn't for me. When I first started doing metta, I would cry and cry because I would think about all the sadness and all the sad stories. But I kept doing it. And it's a practice of purification. You know, and I would do it and I would feel aversion for myself, hatred, irritation. Someone said that today in an interview. I hate metta. (laughs) (laughs) I hate the metta voice. I hate the guided imagery. You know, it's like... And I really get that. On some level, I did too. It was like, oh, I hate this. May I be happy. May I be peaceful. (laughs) But there's a way that we just do it. There's something that internally is hearing it. Do you know? It's something that's going in on another level because it's our intention to wish. It's our intention to wish ourselves love. Who else is going to do it? It has to be us. We have to change. We have to transform. We're not going to get it from society. We have to do it. We have to practice transforming our own heart. We're the ones. So we do our practice. We infuse it with metta. We learn to wake up and bow to whatever's here. All that anger again. Okay, loving what is. Here it is. We practice it. It's not our habitual way. We know that. We've seen this after five days, right? We see our habits. But we train in another way. We incline the mind in another direction. And so we learn to have this view. And so we can practice in this way. I love Thich Nhat Hanh. He writes, uh, so try your practice, your walking practice like this. He writes, kiss the earth. Walk and touch peace every moment. Walk walk and touch happiness every moment. Each step brings a fresh breeze. Each step makes a flower bloom. Kiss the earth with your feet. Bring the earth your love and happiness. The earth will be safe when we feel safe in ourselves. And so there's really truth in that. Like when we have this loving heart, we're our own refuge. We're, at, we're safe at our home, right? In a loving home. But the home is our mind. It's not anywhere else. This is where we're trying to come home to, the peace here. We can't even create that if we, if we have a million-dollar home with all the Buddha statues you could buy. It, couldn't, it doesn't make you peaceful. <laughs> it's this that we have to transform our home here, the mind, moment to moment. 
Love really is a refuge. Our own loving heart can make us feel safe. We can be safe anywhere because we know we're capable of loving the moment, whatever it is. I fall down, I get up. Okay. Can I open to that with love? You know, I've got a stomach ache. Can I be loving with that? Oh, it's bliss. Okay. We learn. So this, the, the next thing that I really learned about this practice was that it can heal you and it works, really works. I really believe this. I, I feel in some ways I transformed myself with metta, you know, because my childhood was so difficult that I couldn't get it anywhere else. And I spent months, I realized thinking today, I spent almost two years in intensive retreat just like this. And many of those hours I spent doing metta practice. And I worked on it, and I worked on it, and I worked on it. And really I feel in some way as I was reflecting in my room, I thought, I really have been changed. My inclined, my inclination is towards metta most of the time. And it's not that I don't suffer, but I suffer and metta's there. It soothes it. There's a natural love and compassion that I can, I can take care of myself differently now. So we have to be patient. You know, this process is a drop at a time. Some people sit down. I didn't feel it. I hate it. It doesn't work. <laughs> it's not going to work for me. You don't know my heart. It's stony. <laughs> I've been hurt many times. I get that. Me too. We've all been hurt. We've all been betrayed. We've all been let down. We've all been left. We've all been, uh, you know, we've all been there. All of it. All of our stories are similar. So we have to be patient with metta, you know, drop by drop, phrase by phrase, moment by moment, the transformation is happening. We can't rush it. I want to read you this cute little story. It's kind of childlike, but we're all children inside. It's called A Cry for Help. Once upon a time, there was an island where all the feelings lived. Happiness, sadness, and all the others, including love. One day, it was announced to the feelings that the island would sink, so all repaired their boats and left. Love was the only one who stayed. Love wanted to persevere into the last possible moment. So when the island was almost sinking, love decided to ask for help. Richness was passing by love in a grand boat. Love said, Richness, can you take me with you? Richness answered, no, I can't. There's a lot of gold and silver in my boat. There's no room for you here. Love decided to ask Vanity, who was passing by in a beautiful vessel. Vanity, please help me. Can't help you, love. You're all wet and you might damage my boat. <laughs> Sadness. Sadness was close by, so Love asked for help. Sadness, let me go with you. Oh, love, I'm so sad. I need to be alone. Sorry. <laughs> Happiness passed by love. But she was so happy that she didn't hear when love called to her again and again. <laughs> Suddenly, there was a voice. Come, love, I will take you. It was an elder. Love felt so blessed and overjoyed. He forgot to ask the elder her name. 
When they arrived at dry land, the elder went her own way. Love, realizing how much she owed the elder, asked knowledge, another elder. Who helped me? It was time, knowledge answered. Time, asked love. But why did time help me? Knowledge smiled with deep wisdom and answered, because only time is capable of understanding how great love is. Oh, story. (laughs) 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 So... It takes time. It's not going to happen in a 30-minute session here, right? It starts. It's important, though, to transform your heart. What else are we going to do here? What I mean, really, what else is there to do? The Dalai Lama, as I mentioned when I did the taught the Metta session, he says, my religion is kindness. That's all. What's your religion? What is there to do here but to practice being loving and transforming? And you all believe that because you're here. You wouldn't be otherwise. So the other insight I realized was there's this great power in love. There's this power in it. And this love and this kindness. We can start, when we've transformed ourselves, we can start to bring it out into the world. You know, it starts with us and then it begins to generate out. We can learn to uh, cultivate it and then people feel it. Things start to happen. There's another story I'd like to tell um, about this sort of how love affects community. I love this story a lot. I didn't tell Jack I was going to tell it. It's I sort of modified it, but anyway, I'll talk to him later about it. (laughs) But it's a story. It's called um, The Three Metta Monks. So there was three monks, and they lived, um, we'll say about a thousand years ago. And they uh, lived in a little community. And these three monks had been together their whole lives. And they were getting, you know, older. uh, And they lived in a very happy community, uh, very peaceful People came to the temple, received teachings, they taught. It was very, you know, everything was very uh, simple. Uh, things were well. And then a series of events happened. One was that a nearby community or a state nearby to them decided to have a war. So that meant all the men and uh, the younger men and the fathers and the brothers all went off to the war. And then they had a monsoon that was so bad, all the crops flooded. And then that led to a famine. And so that led to a sense of sadness and desperation as people experienced the loss of their uh, fathers and their husbands. And then on top of that, a famine so that some of the children were dying. And so what happened was nobody started to come to the temple anymore. And these three monks were there and they too felt this sadness And this change happened over a period of some months. Um, But they started to sit together and reflect, what should we do? People are so sad. No one's coming to the teachings. The temple's empty. And they needed help. They needed people to come there. They needed the monastery to be tended, things to be done. 
And so the community was just in a state of complete despair. And so they began to reflect on this and they too fell into a state of complete despair. And so one day as they were sitting outside in their garden, they saw a very well-known wise rabbi. And they saw him walking along and they said, there he is, the famous wise rabbi. Let's bring him in (laughs) and let's talk to him. So they went out on the road and they got him and they brought him in and had tea with him and they told him about all the problems that were happening. And they said, what should we do? We really need help. Our community is suffering. Nobody's coming to the temple. And there's a, there's a sadness that's settled on the community. And so this rabbi looked at these three monks and said, oh, monks, I understand because this too is happening in my community And he said, in fact, I'm on my way to do a little retreat not far from here where I was going to contemplate what to do. And so they all sat together for a while. And then the rabbi said, I'm going to make my retreat. And he went off. And so the monks sat that night and they thought. And the next day, they saw the rabbi again coming down out of the hills. And he was smiling. And so the monks thought, great, he knows what to do. We'll get him. So they brought him back in. And they asked him, they said, you're smiling. This is good news. So uh, what should we do? How can we help the community? And the rabbi was smiling and he said, I was sitting on top of the hill all night like a stone. And when the sun set, when the sun arose, the answer did come to me. And he looked at these three monks and he said, your savior is among you. And he bowed and he left. And so these three monks looked at each other and they thought, oh, our Savior is among us. It's, he's one of us. Oh, and so they didn't, they were so happy. And so each monk was so humble that he thought it was the other one, right? So he thought, he's the Savior. Of course he'd be this monk who's been with me my whole life. And so each one started to do metta for the other one thinking this is the Savior. And so all night in secret, they would sit up doing metta for the others. And then they would treat each other so beautifully, thinking he's the Savior at any moment. It's all going to change. And so they all started doing the metta more and more and taking care of each other and giving each other tea and treating each other with such love, such tenderness, such compassion. And so this went on for some time, and this metta began to get stronger and stronger as they would sit up more. And and of course, metta has its own energy, and it gets bigger and bigger. And so that's what began to happen. This field began to form, and they just kept doing it, knowing any moment the Savior is going to, you know, arise and something big will happen. And so people began to wander by and look in the window and see these three monks so loving so caring, and they were drawn back to the temple. And so family would come by and they would see these monks and interact with them and think, I love these monks. And they would stay on and fix the roof and receive teachings. And then other people would wander by. And pretty soon people began to say, go see these three meta monks. And these monks, and they began to become like legends, right? Over time, people began to want to visit them. And all along, the monks kept up the practices all night long for the other others, each thinking the Savior's coming. And this went on for some time, but people began to interact with them more and more. In the monastery, the garden was replanted as people began to come around and crowds gathered and teachings were given. And over, lo and behold, over about a year, things began to transform. And so they noticed that one day 
And at that same moment, they saw the rabbi making his way back by the road. And so they grabbed him and they brought him in again. And they said, look around, everything's flourishing. Things have changed. And the rabbi looked and said, yes. And they said, but who was the savior? And he laughed and he said, oh, monks, the savior was nothing other than love and kindness. And they all laughed. (laughs) So it's true in some way, you know, this love and kindness is a great power. Larry and myself and some other people opened a meditation center in downtown Oakland, right on the corner, you know, uh, of this, this area that a lot of people would think, oh, this is a terrible place for a meditation center. Like, why would you pick here? But you know what? We do a lot of metta teachings, and that center has been like a light into that community. And in some way, uh, it's an expression of my metta, an expression of his metta. And we teach there, and people come in, and we teach about love and kindness. And it's grown and grown and grown. And in some way, it's helping that community you know, and across the street, there's boarded up buildings and graffiti and homeless people wander by. And you can hear all that while you're sitting, <laughs> people begging. It's all there, but it doesn't matter, you know, because inside there's this force of love growing there. So kindness has a chain reaction, and we can see this in ourselves. When one person has a kind act, it influences other people. You influence each other by your own loving heart. One person holds the door open, notice this, then the next person holds the door for the next person. Or you could set off a little chain reaction in, in your own life. We see this. There was a whole movement. I remember by Oprah a couple, maybe 10 years ago, practice random acts of kindness, right? I mean, it caught on like crazy. Everyone was looking for ways to help. But that's important, but also it's the inner, too. You know, that has to be balanced, but it can be. Love is powerful. So with the metta practice, I want to read you some of the benefits of doing metta. This was they say in the Vasudhi Maga. These 11 benefits, so this will enhance, you know, entice you to practice. <laughs> First one, you will sleep easily and peacefully. You wake easily. You dream no evil dreams. One is dear to all humans. You are dear to non-human beings and animals will love you. The devas, these celestial beings, will protect you and cherish you. Neither fire, poison, nor weapons will harm you. (laughs) One's mind will gain concentration quickly One's complexion will be bright and radiant. One will die unconfused, and you'll be reborn in a happy realm. (laughs) With the Brahmins, they say. (laughs) And so this love we see has power. But also the other aspect of the wisdom part of the love, why I call this wise love, is that we recognize that there's impermanence in this. So this is a flower that I love a lot. You know, like when you walk around in the desert and you see these little flowers? But this flower won't last long 
but I love it anyway, even though I know in maybe three or four days it'll be gone, it'll start dissolving. Impermanence is an important aspect. We can learn to love and let go. Real love understands that everything is impermanent, it's all changing. And can I love it anyway, even though it's fading? It doesn't matter. You know, so many times people appreciate, they love rainbows and butterflies, all the things that are so temporary. You know, when we see a rainbow, everyone gets really excited. But we know it's only going to be there maybe two or three minutes. But we love it. It's just this beautiful manifestation. And we can enjoy it while it's here. Wise love understands and lets go. Our lives are so fleeting. I had this insight on a retreat one time, and the insight went like this. Hello, goodbye. Hello, goodbye. I cried. I just really got it. We're here now. Hello. And then we'll be gone. Goodbye. We're just, uh, we're rainbows. You know, we make this appearance. We don't know when we'll be gone. So love includes that understanding. I love it even more. I can love you even more because I know that we're all just temporary. We're here. We're appearing. We appear as this now for a period, and then we'll disappear and appear as something else. Can we love this appearance? How could we not? It's just like this flower. I love it. It's here now, but it won't be. So love understands this impermanence. It doesn't hold on because it goes, that was enough. It's gone now. Goodbye. I loved it. It's enough. There's an enoughness in it. We don't have to hold on, cling on, or be attached. There's another poem that I love that really, really captures this. It's one of my favorites, actually. If you've been around the retreat circuit for a while, you've heard it, (laughs) but not in this moment. (laughs) So it'll be new now. (laughs) But it's called Kindness, and it's by Naomi Shihab Nye. She's a Palestinian poet. She writes, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up 
with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it's only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you've been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So I think that poem is wise because it's, we recognize that this is impermanent. And you know, when you have touched sorrow deeply, you do appreciate kindness. You appreciate it in a whole nother level. You know, when you've been through hell, <laughs> some form of it, you really know and you can appreciate a simple act of someone giving you a hug or saying something sweet at just that moment. There's a story um, that Oprah told that was a lot about kindness. And she said that um, when she was a child, uh, she was pretty neglected and she felt very ugly and unattractive. In fact, her mother would tell her that. And um, she was even, as a child, had to sleep on the porch while her other sisters slept in the house. So she was really not treated well by her mother at all. And she said she was feeling really down and she was at church and she was about nine years old. And she said she held her head down. She didn't look up. And she told the story. It was in an interview. It was so sweet. She said a story about this woman at church who was the most beautiful woman in church. You know, it had the beautiful clothes and everybody admired her. And she was also very kind and caring. And Oprah said one day she was really sad. And it was at the end of church. And this woman walked by her. And then came back and turned around and lifted up her head. And this was in Mississippi. And she said, well, aren't you just the prettiest thing? And then she said, with those beautiful bee-stung lips. And Oprah says she melted and she didn't forget that for seven years, that that woman's kindness stuck with her. And she said it was like a life, a life jacket in the middle of the ocean. It was so meaningful. So don't underestimate the little things, you know, the little things toward yourself, the moments where you accept yourself, the moments where you say, I love you, and it goes in maybe for the first time. It's important. So to love wisely means to let things go. It means to understand that things are always changing, that it's impermanent. It's also to understand that there's power in it. It's to understand that the meta practice works if you do it again and again. You know, you just put your time in, you plant the seeds, you know, and that's what you're doing. And you might not feel like anything's happening. And then suddenly, you know, it's like as if you are in your own garden, you know, you plant and you plant and you plant. And then one day it all just blooms. And there you go. So do your practice, even if you hate it. <laughs> do it anyway. Do it for me and you. But mostly do it for yourself. It's your own heart. It's your own home. You know, no use going and decorating your house when this is all, you know, <laughs> not so good. So try to practice loving kindness as much as you can. 
this kind of what I'd like to close with and just say, I want to read one final thing, but practice love, transform your heart, take it seriously while you're here. And, you know, forgive everyone who has done anything to you. Just let go. Let go. Let go of anger. Let love have you. It's your true nature. And we don't know how much time we have here. How do we want to spend it? What is meaningful? So I just want to close this little talk here about metta with um, a story that I love a lot from a book I love, and it's called How Then Shall We Live? And the book's by Wayne Muller. And it's a chapter, a story that I'll read to you. And it's called If I Had Ten More Years. Paul was dying of cancer. It became clear to him that it was time for him to prepare for death. About a week before Paul died, I was visiting him one morning. I found him sitting up, propped against a mound of pillows. I sat on the edge of his bed. His bedroom had a beautiful porch with French doors that were always open to the summer sun and gentle breezes. Paul sat, silent, in the rays of the morning light. I feel ready to go, he said finally. There was a quiet on his face. But sometimes, he reflected, I just wish I had more time. Paul's voice carried so much sadness mingled with acceptance, melancholy, softened with a gentle peace. In a moment like this, it is bittersweet. Some of our dreams have come true, some have not. There is a readiness to die, accompanied by an equally passionate wish to live. In the light of his few remaining mornings, Paul was reviewing the wishes of a lifetime. I was grateful to be even near him. I've done so much work to prepare for this moment, he said. I came to Santa Fe to deepen my life, learn more about spiritual practice. I've learned yoga, practiced meditation with some wonderful teachers, and I have been loved by many beautiful people. I'm not unhappy with my life. I know I'm clear and whole inside. And when I feel that, I'm not afraid. I know it's time. Again, it was quiet. His words mingled with the morning light and the cool air. But I also wish I could stay here, he added slowly. A tentative wish offered against the growing impossibility of its coming true. I wish I had 10 more years free of this illness. With those 10 years, I could really live as I always wanted. We sat for some time in the wake of that wish. It vibrated in the air, this wish for life, and enveloped two men who would someday die. We each felt the truth of it from a particular vantage point that morning. What would you do if you could give, get those 10 years? What would your life look like, I finally asked. Paul spoke easily and certainly. I would be kind. I would live my life with kindness, he said. I would be kind to children. I would teach them to be kind too. This is all I ever really wanted to do, just to be kind, to be loving. 
He was quiet for a moment. A few months ago, when I was feeling quite strong, I thought I would treat myself, so I walked into a bakery and ordered two of my favorite cookies. I told the girl behind the counter that they were my favorite. She said she loved them too, but that they were too, too expensive. When I left, I thought about it for a minute, went back, and bought another cookie and gave it to her. This one's for you, I said. She was surprised by my kindness. You're such a kind man, she said. I felt absolutely wonderful. Such a small thing, such an easy thing to do. This is how I would live my life if I had more time. In the face of his death, Paul saw his life. His death clarified his heart's desire to be a kind person. Everything else fell away, and he simply saw what was precious and valuable. To be kind, this was the most sacred thing, the most perfect and accurate offering that he could make. So let's just close our eyes and just sit for a moment. May all beings everywhere be happy and peaceful. May all beings everywhere be safe and protected. May all beings everywhere be healthy and strong. And may all beings everywhere live with ease and well-being. Thank you.